Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. First up, it looks like there was a release of Phoenix Live View 0.19.5. has a few backwards incompatible changes around the Live View Upload Writer, a few enhancements for the Upload Writer, and some other various bug fixes. So check that out if you're interested and you are using Live View. And next up, there was a question posed to Jose about, will the Elixir type system make it harder for beginners? And Jose answered with a short video where he just kind of talks about this and the potential impacts of a type system. He identified some ways that it, it may help people who are new to Elixir in that the editor experience can help with code completion and discovery of what's available. The type declaration is a complete specification. So if you have a type declaration on existing code, it gives you a clearer picture of what the code is going to require and return. One of the challenges he identified that may be a problem is that, you know, if you're new to Elixir, you may not know how to write a type specification correctly to express what it is you want to do. So that could be a challenge. Really, the point was, it's still being worked on. It's not a sure done deal at this point. And also that types most likely for a really long time will be optional, while especially the Erlang VM continues to be dynamic underneath. Well, anything that Elixir builds on top of that, it's still going to turn into a dynamic language in execution at runtime. And Jose also assumes that there will probably be ways of enforcing type requirements as a policy decision, like a company decision or a team could decide and say, you know, we are going to require that all these functions have type declarations or type specifications. And, you know, that could be like a, a CI build check kind of thing. So... Anyway, I thought it was really cool. I just, I'm excited to see what happens. Right now, we don't have anything to actually play with with the type system stuff. And I know Jose talked about like the three stages of doing the development work on this. And, you know, so there's a lot more to see and looking forward to that. All right, next up, uh, there's a new rec feature that will make it easy to stream a response. So that's pretty cool. It's not released as of this morning, but the API looks pretty great. And like rec usually does, there's multiple APIs that, that you can maybe approach streaming a higher level one and a lower level one. So there's a higher level one where you can just kind of like pass it an option of like stream true and it'll just kind of kind of do it for you, <laughs> which is kind of nice. And then it just provides you a, a callback, right? A callback function that will just get executed. Right. There's a way that you can also stream with, with back pressure. So instead of just stream true, you give it stream and then a function. And that's where you can kind of lower level it on your own. For what it's worth, Rec has you know, continue to evolve, even though we don't talk about it every time, it's continued to evolve. So if you haven't been keeping up, there's, you know, there's releases about every other week or so. Some of the uh, newer releases are, you know, including like more decoding options, uh, following redirects options, redacting authentication headers in there. This is moving, you know, I, this is definitely my favorite HTTP adapter. And for what it's worth, it's actually using Finch by default underneath. So if you're still looking for which adapter to use, and we'll talk about it more in a minute, but I think this this is my this is my favorite one. Yes, Rec has become my favorite. And this change in particular about streaming is really something I've been looking forward to personally. Previously, I was able to do it, but it was having to expose some of the underlying Finch API to actually do the streaming at that level. So this is a new API that Voitech has been working on to just make it cleaner. So I'm really looking forward to that. 
we'll definitely share when that's ready. Yeah, and speaking of all these HTTP clients, Andrea Leopardi, who is a Elixir core team member, actually wrote about all of these libraries in Elixir, which ones he likes, when to use which one, and offers some advice to authors in general. And so, yeah, you guys are saying Rec is built on Finch and Finch is built on Mint and who knows what's under Mint. Just kidding. That one's low level. And he, he talks about that and talks about, he, he he's even though he's the author of Mint, he says, never use this. It's too low level. Just use Finch. <laughs> so he talks about Mint, Finch, Rec, HTTP, and he shares a few thoughts on HTTP, Poison, Hackney, Tesla. And it's just a great resource for thinking about all of these HTTP clients. It's come up in my company before people saying, well, there's so many, which one should I use? And code bases that were started a long time, they were started with HTT poison and newer ones are started with Finch and they're just all over the place. Yeah. I especially liked Andrea's thoughts towards library authors. You know, like we've talked about that. You guys have mentioned like that, the whole pain point of that. My project is using like four different HTTP clients because all these other libraries have, this one says I'm using Tesla and this one is using HTTP poison. And you know, like they're making the decision for you and they're all being brought in. So Andrea shared his thoughts for library authors, how to kind of avoid that situation and some ways to approach that. So I really like that. That's been something I've been thinking about lately too. So that was cool. And next up an article titled from Python to Elixir machine learning has been getting some attention recently, and it covers moving from Python PyTorch to Elixir NX. And I just thought it was exciting to see that the incredible work that has already been done on NX is being recognized in a broader context because this article is coming from really kind of from outside of the Elixir community. And this could potentially be a good resource for others who are wanting to take a similar path with their machine learning pipelines. Speaking of uh, Elixir and machine learning, there's a new book that's out. Sean Moriarty met with us back in episode 154 to talk about AI. Of course he did. And he talked about his upcoming machine learning ebook. Not just ebook, it's a print book too, but the beta has been released. He shared the title of his book back with us in the previous episode. It's called Machine Learning in Elixir. So have you guys bought it? I bought it. This is going to be a good one. I'm looking forward to it. I need somebody to break down all these foreign words to me. Yes. <laughs> That's what Sean's doing. And give it some context within Elixir, right? That's what's helpful is getting that mental model in place and just having someone who understands it all connect those dots for you. Mm -hmm. There's definitely like a, a lot of lingo you need to learn. Like I think about machine learning, I read about it. I'm like, I'm lost. It's a whole new world. <laughs> so that would be nice to read. Speaking of intense things. The Membrane Framework, which is an advanced multimedia processing framework that sounds intense to me, maintained by the company Software Mansion, have announced they are planning a conference in October, the 12th through the 14th of October in Krakow, Poland. We'll drop a link in the show notes. If you're interested in attending, they will pay for speakers, travel, and accommodations. So if you're doing something in Membrane and multimedia and you'd like to visit Poland in the fall, well, here's your shot. And next up, Lexical LSP now supports Elixir 1.15. So we were talking about Lexical previously, how it's a language server for doing Elixir development and you know hooking into your editor and, and giving you a great developer experience. And OTP 26 is not yet supported. We have a link to an issue that you can follow if you're wanting to track that. So it's just great to see that it's overcoming some of those initial hurdles that it had where the requirements are a little restrictive. And so now it's, you know, it's getting there. It's like 
it's there with Elixir 1.15. So if you haven't tried it, you should definitely give a listen to our previous episode where we talked with Steve Cohn about that. I have installed it. I use the VS Code extension for that. So yeah, totally give it a try. All right, last up, just wanted to point out a, a nice new security blog post about Elixir. And this is written by Michael Lubis of Paraxial. So Michael discovered that there was a research paper that had been written titled The Vision for a Secure Elixir Ecosystem, an Empirical Study of Vulnerabilities in Elixir Programs. And it was published in a respected journal back in April 2022, so well, a little over a year ago. Anyway, so when you Google Elixir is safe, or maybe Elixir is safe, question <laughs> mark. You know, Google might pull out a little abstract from this paper, and the, and the abstract says, despite Elixir being perceived as a safe language, uh-oh, our empirical study shows programs written in Elixir to contain vulnerabilities. Well, all right. So this is what the blog post that Michael wrote about is, is talking about. There's also a blog post written a year ago in March 2021 by Nathan Long called Elixir is safe. So Anyway, it turns out that the research paper is a, is a bit misleading and and, just, and and Michael's taken the time to break it all down and show that, yes, Elixir is still safe, but it's good to document these things so that there will always be a resource for people when they're trying to evaluate if Elixir is a good language of choice. So if they search that now, hopefully with the SEO juice that, that Paraxial has at this point, well, their article is going to show up here to hopefully debunk any of those concerns that are coming out of other papers. You know, just because it's quote unquote a research paper doesn't mean that the data is really there and that the <laughs> <laughs> or or that the the methods of how they got to their conclusion was was necessarily correct. Like for example, they're they're also taking into consideration these tests aren't secure. And like of course they're not secure. They're tests. It's not their point. It's not the point. Okay, well that's enough of that. I won't spoil the rest of the rest of the blog post, but you ought to go read that blog post by Michael Lubis on the, the Praxial blog called Still Safe. And that's it for the news. Elixir and Phoenix are incredible. They make it possible to quickly build highly resilient and reliable systems capable of operating at incredible scale. Fly.io is a great place to host Elixir apps. You can deploy your app to multiple regions around the world with a private network linking them all together so your app can cluster and globally do some incredible Phoenix magic. Give your users a more responsive UI while writing less code and moving the app closer to your users without needing an ops team. Check out fly.io for your next Elixir app. Today we're being joined by our special guest, Patrick Smith. Patrick, welcome to the show. G'day, uh, g'day from Australia. Awesome. Well, I'm glad you could join us all the way from the other side of the earth because you've been working on a project called Orb, which is a WebAssembly project for Elixir. And that's just a topic we haven't really talked about for a little while, like WebAssembly and any relationship to Elixir, especially. So I'm really excited to be able to learn what this project is, what you've created and kind of what, what the goals are, what you're setting out to do with this. But before we get into that, I'd love to just learn a little bit more about you. Like, where do you live and what kind of work are you doing? I'm living in Tasmania at the moment, which if you've ever seen a map of Australia, it's the, at the bottom right, there's a little triangle shaped island. So I'm just living there. I've been doing coding probably for about 20 years. Like I started as a teenager. I was mostly self-taught. I studied multimedia design, which they don't call that, it that anymore, which sort of dates me. <laughs> but uh, that had video animation, which is what I was originally into drawing some web stuff and 
3D. And so it's just like all this like cool digital stuff. And I had already done coding for a while. So that's naturally, I think, where after uni needed to make some money, started doing freelance web dev. Nice. So how long have you been using Elixir? Like, where did that start coming in? Um, I think it's probably about five years. It's always been like a passion project on the side because I just get curious, just wanted to learn new tools. So like I did PHP, then I did Objective-C, made some Mac apps, then Swift came along, did some Swift. Then PHP got a bit, you know, sort of reached my limits with that. So I did, looked into Node.js and Golang and then taught at a boot camp for a while learnt Ruby on Rails to teach to teach that, you know, I was meant to be teaching this technology and I'd literally just uh, found a video course and learnt it the month before. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> and then, yeah, then re more recently, uh, a lot of React.js and specialist front-ender ones. But, yeah, I sort of have gotten a bit tired of that world or just it feels a bit, some of the stuff feels a bit over-engineered. So, yeah. Of of React JS React. I don't know. I, <laughs> like at the boot camp, I had to teach React, and it's like you're teaching the stuff, and it's like, like it's amazing. It's amazing technology. It's had an amazing impact, but they learn the tool. They don't. They don't. I don't feel like the there's a sense of the web that has been lost where they don't learn the sort of yeah. Not trying to gatekeep, but just like it just feels like some of the fundamentals of the web that just like you don't you you're like three layers above. So. So a lot of side projects have been me trying to like just find out about that stuff. I understand that why it's been abstracted away. Where in that, you know, did you find Elixir or or I should say like what was the thing that pulled you in? What was that thing that interested you about it? Like all my JavaScript now, TypeScript is all functional programming. So like I'm fully on board with functional. So that was really attractive. I don't know. It's just it just seemed like a cool I think I just was literally at a job and someone said this like they were a .NET developer and they're like, we're just talking about some stuff and they're like Elixir, you know, look into Elixir. And I was like, I've never heard of this thing. This, this is probably more than five years ago. Nice. Well, word of mouth. I mean, that's what did it for me a long time ago. Mm -hmm. Though I, I would have expected a .NET developer to have told you about F Sharp or something, but hey, I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. Well, I'm looking forward to talking about WebAssembly, right? Because... First, you know, we should just kind of talk about what is WebAssembly because it's been a while since we've talked about it. And really, when it started coming out, it was super hyped, right? It was WebAssembly will be everywhere. It will run all the things. And we're going to be writing compiled apps that run in a browser. And that's, like, that's the way everything's going to be. But like, the hype didn't live up to that. Also, Dockyard has had its own Elixir WebAssembly initiative called Firefly, where they were doing something. But what they were doing felt very ambitious in that they were trying to like recreate the beam in a single threaded WebAssembly system, right? Where you're still using processes and PIDs and things like that, modeling concurrency that way. And honestly, it seems like the Firefly project has kind of stalled out or maybe paused is a better word. So when I saw there was something else happening around WebAssembly with Elixir, I was like, wow, you know, that's exciting. I'd love to learn more about this. Get us caught up to speed. Like, what is WebAssembly? And start us there. Yeah, so I think there's lots of different aspects to this, so I'll try and remember it all. I think 
this project has been partly to teach me about WebAssembly. Like you, to use WebAssembly today, and I would encourage all. I think it could be an interesting project to build stuff. It's I'm going to release it alpha soon. I want to put it through a process of getting community feedback to work out exactly what it should be. But like you can use a language like Rust or Zig or C or TinyGo. It's really cool because you can use these existing languages. And like I've seen, like there's an initiative with Kotlin to have some sort of WebAssembly output. And so uh, that's really cool. You can use a, you can even use a pretty brand new language like Rust and develop using WebAssembly. But I wanted to to know what exactly is WebAssembly because usually when you use this stuff, you have like like in Rust, you have like bindings, and so you sort of decorate your functions that are exported, and it creates this like boilerplate stuff because it thinks it's going to be integrated into JavaScript. It's going to be integrated into the browser. That's really nice because that's where WebAssembly came from. It came from the web browser. But like, what if you could write simple WebAssembly modules that, like there is this thing of write once, run in anywhere. I don't want to be wary of, cautious of that because I don't, I'm not on cloud nine with, like, I don't think that's maybe going too far. So yeah, I've just been trying to understand exactly how it works. Yeah. The, the whole promise of write once, run anywhere is like what kind of drove java right like it's been something that we've wanted for a long time and then just as developers like i can if i can target multiple platforms then why wouldn't i want to do that so well i guess where i'm curious about so your project is called orb and it's interesting that you you can have all these different languages that can compile down to or cross compile to WebAssembly. why should i care about WebAssembly today what is the reason i would want to target WebAssembly? So I think for me, like if you look at the web standards, like what web standards have done is they give you this promise of backwards compatibility that is sort of pretty unique. Like if you look at JSON, like JSON, you know, people have tried, you know, people have tried to add comments and stuff to it, but it's like a solid, nice little small thing and you can just like depend on it. And it's like in 20 years, we'll still be using JSON. For better or for worse, you can look at like HTML, <laughs> you can look at CSS, you can even look at JavaScript. And these technologies are designed to be backwards compatible. So if you write a WebAssembly module today, I believe it should still work in 20 years time. And that's quite different to a lot of stuff out there. I beg to differ. HTML has changed, sir. They have removed the marquee tag. (laughs) It is no (laughs) longer backwards compatible. My site is now broken. (laughs) (laughs) The blink is also gone. It's like, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, they made some tough choices there. That's that's pretty. Uh, that's a pretty pretty interesting point, though. That uh, yeah, that that this is meant to be a a effort to make complicated things outside of HTML and CSS be more backwards compatible. I I came into this thinking about that it was about portability. Like that's the this is where you know I could go and go into sort of dreamland and like there's just so many different. Like I'm pretty excited about it. Got to like keep it a bit capped. But I think there is a lot of potential. Like I don't think the story is fully developed, but. It was developed in the browser. The browser has certain constraints, which are really interesting. So it's like, it's sandboxed. So like, you know, if you've got WebAssembly module running in one tab, it can, like, it absolutely cannot escape that sandbox. And so like web technologies, like, are just an excellent 
breathing ground for developing a technology like that. It's like designed to be fast. So if you're like you said, Java before, like we probably all remember like Java applets and in, in, in our Netscape browser or whatever, or Internet Explorer, like that, those things usually took a bit of time to boot up. Like you, oh, okay, they're using Java, got this little window, it's got a little progress indicator and then ding. Right. I forgot about that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> then, it, then, oh, it's loaded now. And it's like, oh, you know, partly because we're on slow connections, but partly, you know, it was trying to download like a meg of some jar file. That and ActiveX had the same kind of like experience yes. or Flash <laughs> movies. <laughs> oh, yeah. Flash. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Hall of Fame technology. That's an interesting point, right? Like that there have been previous efforts to kind of bring something that's shoehorned in or, or encapsulated inside a browser window or area that you're writing in a different language in a completely different way. So I guess, as I understand it, WebAssembly is where I can write in a language and I'm having to use a stripped down set of commands. Like I may not be able to use the full set of features that are available to Elixir or Ruby or Rust. I'm limited down to like, these are the set of commands or features that you can use. And then whatever I write in that language could be transpiled or compiled and targeted down to like a WebAssembly. As I understand from what the, the promise was previously with WebAssembly is that I could even run a WebAssembly compiled application outside of a browser, like on my server potentially. But then yes, you could run it in a browser and you're talking about sandboxing and the security restrictions and protections there uh, for that environment. So it's, it's a really interesting idea. Do I have that right or am I missing something? No, I think that's right. It's like, I think there's a question here, like a, with write once, run anywhere. Like, you know, am I going to create my whole application in WebAssembly? Like I'm probably leaning towards mm, like not yet, or I'm not sure if I'd want to do that. Like Figma is an amazing example of something that's largely WebAssembly. Things like C++ compiled to WebAssembly, then like a bunch of WebGL magic. Like it's pretty, pretty amazing how that's built, but what I'm exploring now is like more smaller modules. And so I'm not going to say I'm the world's best branding expert, but I've been thinking of variations of the, on that uh, write once run everywhere. Is it like maybe it could be write once integrate everywhere or plug in everywhere, like these small modules that you can plug in or write once run everywhere lightly. So it's not going to be like this Java, like applet thing that's like the whole app. Maybe it's like, these are functions like for date formatting or for uh, certain logic that I have, certain algorithms that I have, or certain things like if you if you think of like a back end and a front end team and they're like gonna validate a form or these sort of like little business logic things, often what happens is that they'll implement it twice and they'll go where that back ends in C sharp or Elixir or whatever, and then the front ends in JavaScript. And we so we implement this like email address validation or whatever it is, we implement it twice. So I think what I'm curious about is what if you could just have it, this one WebAssembly uh, module and you should start sharing some stuff. Is this Orb? Did you just describe Orb to us? I think so. So Orb has been a thing to let me learn WebAssembly. So I'm trying to like look at WebAssembly itself, not look at like what Rust or whatever outputs. I'm trying to learn like the ingredients of WebAssembly so it's a WebAssembly module is basically a bunch of functions. Those functions are either exported or internal. 
And then there's these things called globals. Those globals are like either integer or a floating point number, 32-bit or 64-bit. And then there's a big array of memory. And then there's some other stuff, and but I've sort of just for now I've just focused on that that set of features. Like that's really simple, but it's Turing complete, and it's portable, and as you said, it's a constrained programming environment, but it's really powerful. So that's what Orb is trying to make that more accessible. I really like in your README one of the first functions you introduce Orb dot to what? That's good. <laughs> yeah. That's good. <laughs> Yeah, it's not the it's not the meme. The what what stands for WebAssembly text syntax. <laughs> sure it does. <laughs> so you you could write that text syntax, but it looks sort of like a Lisp like thing. It's kind of cool language. Yeah, and I sort of like oh, I like Elixir's kind of lispy. This thing's kind of like these things like compose nicely. Like you know. Maybe there's a good marriage here between Elixir and, and this WebAssembly text format. So so I'm, I'm trying to place Orb then. Is it a package manager? Is it a sharing repo of common modules? You know, is it a, a mini GitHub of these kinds of things? Is is this replacing... <laughs> Sorry, I'm going to do a throwback here. This is 25 years ago. Is this, re- me, is this replacing me uh, sharing my VB, uh, VBA modules across AIM? to random strangers on the internet <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm hoping we'll um yeah there'll be some forums you know you can you can share some stuff we, we you know forums with that syntax highlighting you know <laughs> be the good old days <laughs> so i had done some previous projects i'm very good at making projects and very bad at marketing them so i've done some previous projects uh with generator functions in javascript and i used those to solve two problems state machines which i think WebAssembly would be good for, and parsers, which I also think WebAssembly would be good for. You sort of had this declarative syntax for declaring these state machines and how they all connect and these parsers and how they can connect. And I thought, this is cool, but ideally like this, I would compile this to WebAssembly and have these things, you define the state machine and then be able to like plug it into any whatever, like backend, frontend, edge, wherever you are, like mobile device, like these are WebAssembly can, you know, run on our laptops, on our phones. The potential is there for it to be this universal, you know, this, this sort of holy grail, you know, we, we want to temper our expectations a bit, but I think there is some potential there for it to be a solution there. So the reason why I chose Elixir partly, if you look at some of what Jose Valim wrote, and like you can see this with NX and you can see it with Ecto, he designed it as this sort of framework for be- building DSLs. So you can create new custom languages or whatever on top. And so that, that's what I sort of feel like I've done with this whole project. It's, it's, I'd call it a DSL for WebAssembly. You can author WebAssembly and you can take advantage of all of Elixir's features as like a compiler. So if you've ever written C, you can like include stuff and it's a bit rusty in my head, but you can basically like when you've got sort of like a macro system, like a, it's called a pre-compiler, pre-assembler or forgotten. All it does is just like stick strings together. It's like super crude and you have often have to like use parentheses to sort of make sure stuff doesn't clash and like get in each other's way and stuff. Like that's really crude. Like Elixir's like 
way better than any of that stuff. So basically, like with Orbit, generating this like AST of all the WebAssembly stuff, and then that two what function spits out a WebAssembly text format of that stuff at the end. So what I'm hoping is that I can take advantage of like Elixir already has a package manager, so you could publish these, write these Orb your own Orb modules, and just put them on Hex. Like Elixir has all this stuff, like it's got a language server. It's got CI integration. Like if I want to test, like it's so like, I guess the other avenue I could have taken is like, oh, I'm going to create my own programming language. I'm a little bit afraid that I've done that with Orb because I don't want to do that. But there's projects out there that have done that. Like they target WebAssembly. It's this new programming language from the ground up. But then they have to create this all this ecosystem. Oh, we have to create the VS Code language server. We have to create the blah, blah. Like just to get something off the ground today, it's like a huge amount of work. So I think that's both like, I don't want to do it. Like, I just don't think the world needs another programming language necessarily, unless it's really good. And I want to, like, I think this stuff, I think this stuff where Elixir is a good fit and you can take advantage of the existing ecosystem community and so forth. So I'd like to understand how this really compiles into WebAssembly. People should really check out the, the, the README because you can see this code, right? It's, it's, I've got a Elixir def module and I'm defining a module called calculate mean. And I'm just saying to use orb. And then now I have these macros available to me. So then within a WASM block, like a WebAssembly block, WASM, then I can declare some code that is not normal Elixir code. Like I'm declaring a function of insert and I'm declaring some type stuff. I'm doing it with Elixir code, but it's like, it kind of looks like a different language a little bit. You're showing how that turns into what, W-A-T, like a WebAssembly text, I think you called it. So how does that actually then turn into WebAssembly, like compiled? Like where, where does that hook into the tool chain? Like how did, do I do like a special mix compile or something? Or how does that happen? So, um, as you will know, there's like this amazing package called Rustler. So you can, what that, mm -hmm. like, this is another like unique aspect of Elixir. It's like, unlike the entire like cargo suite of libraries that are available there, I can plug into my Elixir app. Like that's, that's incredible. There's a few runtimes for WebAssembly. One's called Wasm Time. And I'm going to forget the history, but a few years ago, back, you know, you're sort of saying like when, uh, WebAssembly was sort of first hot. There were like two competing primary runtimes and they decided to combine and, you know, and that's why sometimes. So that's, I would say like, that's the best runtime at the moment that you can plug into any application. And I've created a, a wrapper around that. I don't think it's like, I'm not particularly happy with it. I just want to call it out. There's two other ones for Elixir, Wasmtime EX. That's by Viniark, and there's another one called Wasmx, and that's by Philip Tessenau. You might want to check those out as well. Um, I'm definitely not trying to take over, you know, say, you know, my, I've done it better. Those things will take a WebAssembly module that's compiled, or they can actually take a WebAssembly text format and sort of compile it on the fly and then start running your, your WebAssembly module. And there's also like a little tool. There's a bunch of tools out there. There's one called what to wasm So it can take a WebAssembly text format, turn it into the WASM bytecode. 
So all Orb does at the moment is that all it does is compile to that text format. So if this project becomes successful and I really like learn WebAssembly inside out, I'll look into compiling directly to that bytecode. But for now, I'm just taking a shortcut and I'm just compiling to that text format. Gotcha. Okay, not to throw this off, but this reminds me a lot of the project called Matcha, which is a kind of a DSL for dealing with uh, Erlang's match specs. And those match specs are kind of uh, different. It's kind of like a little mini DSL, mini language inside of Erlang. But you want to use these match specs because they're highly optimized. They're used everywhere in Erlang code. And so it's like it goes st straight to C <laughs> at, this, at this point. In this case, you have a nice DSL on top of Elixir to help create these this WASM WAT, you know, pseudo lispy looking stuff. And instead of executing it in highly optimized match spec C Erlang code, you, you are instead going to target a WASM runtime, I guess. So it's WASM time or whatever the, those libraries are that you uh, pointed out. And, okay, so that was one of the questions I had. I was like, okay, so Orb is one of these things that is like, okay, great, I can write this. How do I run it? <laughs> what? How do I run this stuff? So let me ask it in a different way then. What's a good use case for some orbs to be run? Like, when might I decide that having a function in WASM and therefore executed in WebAssembly runtime, like, what would be a good spot for that? Yeah. So the yeah. So the orb sort of targets the first part of the story, which is authoring. And again, I just want to stress, like, if you decide to use Rust or Zig, like, I'm not like I don't think like orbs gonna like somehow you know, it's somehow superior to those. So I think they're valid ways of writing WebAssembly as well. And then, then as you say, the, there's the, how do I run this thing? And so there's a bunch of proprietary cloud platforms, which let you like, kind of like link to their standard library. And then you can run in the cloud. And it's like a more lightweight Lambda. And like, you can write in Python, you can write, write in Rust or whatever, but they, you're sort of targeting like their special course. I really want to have something where it's, agnostic from all of that. So WebAssembly modules can both export functions and export globals, which I sort of think of as, as like um, instance variables of the of that module. And they can also import those two things as well. So they can import globals, which is basically just like integers and floats, and they can import functions, which the WebAssembly module can call out to. I would like to use this in a really like way where I can do that plugging myself, do that plumbing myself. So to give some more concrete examples, so I think like this is this is the criticism that the project needs. So say in live view, I've created this color picture. I can share it at, uh, I'll probably before the episode comes out, I clean up the UI. So basically the way it works is all on live view and I rendered like these custom SVGs to give you like a gradient of where the color currently looks like. And as you adjust the, like that's adjust this little interactive element in the box, it like updates the, the color. If you've ever used Photoshop, it's designed around that idea. So you can sort of see like immediately what the color, the next color will look like if you dragged it to that spot. So this is using um, Phoenix Live View and Phoenix Live View is like amazing because it like just cuts out of like the middle, the middle layer. Just you can just sort of just it's just really nice. There is noticeable latency with sort of interactive widgets like this, and 
especially as someone who lives in Australia, I probably tend to notice this more than um, <laughs> Americans. My apologies. <laughs> no, no, it's fine. It's it's a good it's a good way. I think it's a it's like a um, I think of it as like an athlete that is training in, at high altitude, like. <laughs> living in tasmania is it's like you know yeah, not just did... not just australia but like tasmania <laughs> exactly yeah, but... <laughs> so i noticed i noticed this stuff and um so then i i'll be curious about um your thoughts on like latency with live view because like it is amazing i think it's like an amazing default but i think there are certain things where that immediate interactive control is really important i believe like you would say okay i would use like a, a hook to do that and i'd write it in javascript and so what i'm curious about is hey could you like let's go further like let's stick to elixir could we author that interactive control with a dsl like orb you know it could spit out the because it's all it's basically doing is just you can have a function and it just returns a string of HTML or returns a string of SVG or whatever, just hook into that. And that's actually fast enough to update that. You could update that every frame and now it feels interactive. Okay. So let me, let me repeat what, what some of you said. So that this is just so I know I'm understanding. So in my worldview, WebAssembly belongs in the browser, right? Or, well, doesn't belong there, but that's, that's where a lot of folks are trying to use it. It's like you belong in your corner. <laughs> okay, so if I'm going to write WebAssembly, I can write that in Elixir and I can have that convert into some WebAssembly. The user is visiting my site and so I, I send them the usual payload of HTML and stuff and CSS and probably some JavaScript too. Live View Connects. Is WebAssembly in this payload as well? And so it is still executing in the context of the browser and that's why it's faster and there are no server-side trips? Or is it still running WebAssembly in Elixir and making round trips you know, to the client when some things are updated, but it just happens to be a little bit faster because it's WebAssembly? Yeah, so that's a great question. So I think like I need to do some exploration. So that's what I want. Like I'm, like I said, I studied multimedia design, I always come from things from a user experience point of view. And now I always, I was sort of so passionate about user experience. I taught myself programming to create the best experiences I could. So I would say specifically to that, I would have it run in the browser, but you could also run it to, cause so like live view, right. Does you know, this double thing, right? Like it server renders like traditional, like HTTP send over the initial HTML, then it initiates the WebSocket, and then it sort of now it's mounted and it sort of does a second render even though it expects it to be the same output, but we're in sort of, we're sort of on the other side, um, even though it's all coming from the server. So with WebAssembly, you can have this one module and run it in both environments. You could run it on the server in Elixir or choose your, choose whatever, you know, backend you want, but just sort of looking at live view for now. And then you could also have this thing run in the browser and you sort of, so like the story, like the, as I said, I came, I'm coming from the front end world and there's a bit of complexity like this like react and next and stuff is really popular right now and it feels like they're the if you want to like they have this idea of like these components that run on the server and in the browser and it's really cool to have that but to buy into that like you have to buy into the entire framework mm -hmm. it's like you basically <laughs> now you're creating a next.js application it's like pretty heavy like it's a huge decision to make so I want, I want lighter weight options 
that have the same properties as that. Yeah, wouldn't wouldn't that be something? Wouldn't that be something if that if that's what like orb could be evolving into? You know, not to not to <laughs> really point to where you should be going with this, but I I wonder what that world would look like if you could write your WebAssembly like little components. Not I, and when I say components, I don't mean like HTML components, live view. I'm not not that. Just little little bits of code, right? And that you could ship that over the wire you know, on the initial load or with live view or, or something like that, maybe you could dynamically update your was your, your web assembly component, right. And ship it over with live view, but all that being shipped over the wire to the client for that to be executed on the client side and having, you know, like orb be like this orchestration bit, but also, like you said, it's, it can just execute the same function for the initial view server side you know, or any other time. That would really be kind of the dream at that point, wouldn't it? I think so. And that's why that's why I've been exploring this space. And it's like, okay, how do I author this stuff? I guess I have to create this TSL for it because it's I don't know any other, <laughs> other way. So I have modest, modest expectations of Orb. I, like, I hope to like partly just like share these ideas and get other people thinking, get collaborate. If Orb doesn't survive but it triggers this like the next thing that gets built i'd be happy yeah do you ever hear of did you, have you ever heard of drab no maybe maybe this is a convergence of 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 uh, of ideas that are completely isolated but i think we can all thank drab for live view because drab was a predecessor but had a lot of similar principles process-based principles that live view operates on today it's essentially a, a deprecated library at this point but it really did set forth some principles of like where the world could be if we yeah did something like this if we had a process started up for every you know visitor uh, connected to the server and had like live updates being pushed out um, from the server to the front end not to say that orb is is destined to that i i, I hope not <laughs> you're right like that could really spur something that would be really incredible that would be amazing i think what i find so interesting about this is the use case right we have a link in the show notes to a figma article like you mentioned early in the conversation that figma is written in WebAssembly, and like the article was like from 2017 it's like six years ago and how they improved their, I think it was load time or launch time, like by three times, you know, because it's pre-compiled, things like that. But I think that helps frame the mental idea of what this is a really good option for. It's that I want something much more powerful and interactive and I want it running in the browser, right? I know there are projects that are even like Photoshop or even doing video editing right? And they're completely web-based. And you you know, you can't send a four gigabyte video file up to the server to have it edited and do that fast and have that be a good experience, right? So like what it's doing is it's, it's doing that editing locally. And you're just having to say, yes, you have permission to access to this file. And I think that's, that's where it becomes a really interesting idea. It's like, yeah, that's a whole realm of problems that we're currently not approaching or or imagining uh, solutions around like i'm not going to build it necessarily a live view app that does that but with something like live view plus orb or you know something where i'm doing web assembly that becomes possible and i, I think that that clicked for me when i saw your demo showing this very responsive 
color palette changing gradients, you know, just very smooth. So I'm going to be speaking at ElixirConf USA. So I have to create all these demos, but that's the live view one. So, I mean, if that, if you find that a good experience and that's maybe that's job done, but I intend to make a web assembly and orb powered widget for that as well. And so, you know, can compare. So that's, yeah, that's actually interesting. I think what one vision I have is like, if you, so not might not be this like application scale thing and like it definitely web apps are getting like super powerful, but it could even be stuff that's like not particularly cool. Like in Elixir today, like you're looking for a particular format and you're like, oh, this particular date time format or some, some format that's out there. And you go, oh, there's not an Elixir ver- there's not an Elixir version of this thing. And you're like, oh, that sucks. I guess I have to create it or you know, it's just a, you know, it's a standard format. You can find the RFC for it. I, oh, I guess I'll be the one to create that project. Like one vision I have is like all those sort of common formats should be, there should be a WebAssembly version of it. And you can just pick that thing up and just like plug it into your programming language if it's missing that format. Th- those formats are usually pretty, you know, they they take a string and they spit out some bytes or the, you know, or it does the opposite. So like, I imagine that saying, oh, um, I want some special standardized way of doing this function. And oh, it already exists in Rust. And there's a Rust WebAssembly module that does this. I can pull that into Elixir. And, you know, I could run that just with Elixir or I could even, maybe that's with uh, NIFS or something like that with Rustler or or something else that talks directly to WebAssembly. And, or I could even push that into my browser, right? Yeah, so I think it wants to be that sort of vision. It wants to be like, you want to make that super simple. Like in any programming language today, uh, Elixir is sort of an interesting one because you usually use a third-party package. But if you want to just like pass some JSON, like it's just built into every single language, right? Like you just you just don't even think about it. You go JSON, parse it, bang, out comes the values out the other side. Like you don't... so. I I would love to see, and this might be sort of independent of Orb, but I'd love to just sort of see that sort of workflow for all these like sort of fairly boring mundane formats, but you just you just know there's like this rock solid implementation of this this particular standard and you can just like plug it in and you go, oh no, no, the backend team's using Java and it's like, oh no, they don't have this, they don't have a package for this format. And you're like, oh, that's so, like wouldn't it be great if you could just like you didn't have to worry about that. So I'm hearing that this is solving microservices. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, solving everything. Yeah, you know, <laughs> that's the day. Yeah, that is the danger. I I need to um, need to focus. You know, that's why I appreciate coming on this podcast. Need to focus on concrete use cases here. Well, you mentioned that you're going to be speaking at ElixirConf, and you mentioned also that you would love for people to maybe get involved or inspired by this. Are you looking for contributors? Is there a way that people can jump in and start contributing and getting involved? So yes, I'm yeah, looking for contributors. I've been the the sort of library is at an alpha stage. I think it's ready for people to play with. There's two things that are missing, I think, to make that compelling. So I want to I want to like post it on the Elixir forums, and I I, um, I plan on doing that by the time this episode comes out. But I like if I just put this, if I just go, hey, now you can write WebAssembly in Elixir, people are just going to be like, uh, cool. <laughs> um, why? Why? <laughs> I, yeah. You know, it's the first question. <laughs> so I want to create amazing documentation. So basically, you know, 
have to go through and document every single function that's in the library. I have to create, you know, stories walking you through, teaching you about WebAssembly. Write some live books. You got to get them live books in there. <laughs> no way. Yeah, true. Open Livebook is actually really cool. I tried it the first time the other day and it's like, this is so, this is actually really cool. It was like, it was like instant <laughs> to run and yeah. And I want to create examples. I want to create demos. Like I want to find these like use, actual use cases where people go, oh yeah, like, like I see something here. It's not just like some cool like tech demo. Like I go, oh, yeah, this is actually a bit of a problem. Like, so you want to create those demos. And so that's what I will be showing off at the, at the conference. Well, if people want to follow you online or get in touch with you about this, where should they go to do that? So it's, it's, we're just <laughs> recording the day after it's been changed, but uh, twitter.com slash Royal Icing. Who knows if that will be different in the future. <laughs> if you go to my website, icing.space, I have links to Mastodon and my GitHub is also Royal Icing. Awesome. So we'll have some links to that in the show notes too, uh, so that we'll include. Well, that's really cool. I'm excited to see, especially as you start doing those demos. And I love the idea of you know hearing that. Wow, this is a good, this is a fun thing to play with in Livebook because I think that's really cool. That would be a, like a fun little contained place to get the UI and like develop something uh, like at your own little IDE. That's <laughs> WebAssembly. <laughs> that's cool. Yeah, so I'm really excited to see where you go with this. Yeah, cool. Thank you. I mean, like it just, you know, when I was saying before, like the amazing ecosystem that Elixir has, like Livebook is another one of these like amazing pieces. And it's like, I, I feel like I don't make use of it enough. Like I also like, I think part of the, like I hope Elixir gets more adoption. Like I want to be hired for a job writing Elixir. Shameless plug. <laughs> it's, there's not that many in Australia, sadly. So I both like hope that it can become more popular and like, I'm of course a bit worried, like, I'm not sure if we want it to be like the most popular programming language on the, on the planet. And then it's like a different community. So the Elixir community is like really special. So. Yeah. The, the curse of success, you know, <laughs> <laughs> there'll be a nice problem to have, right? Well, thanks Patrick for talking with us. I appreciate you sharing kind of your vision of what orb is and what people could do with it. I think it's really cool. But unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir.